This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, 20 school buildings in the New Orleans public school system might be renamed in the wake of a committee's recommendations in keeping with a new policy from last year. A group working on behalf of defendants who were convicted with non-unanimous jury verdicts have filed over 1,000 post-conviction relief petitions throughout the state. And over two years, the city has been found to have collected only $1,500 in fines, not the $1 million cited by them at a March meeting. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Good morning. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is back. Hi, Michael. How you doing? And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Morning, Carolyn. Marta, up first with you in education, OPSB, a committee at a meeting announced that they have approved a list of over 20 schools for renaming. What is the background on the renaming policy? What's going on? Yeah, so this is actually the kind of the second giant effort to do this. There was a community-led effort in the 90s in which they changed building names, including removing George Washington from one school. But um, in the wake of George Floyd's death last year and and everything uh, we saw come out of that there was a second effort in which the school board explicitly said you know we will no longer to have buildings named for slave owners segregationists or separatists you know or confederate um sympathizers and so it's it's kind of it's been a months-long process and we finally have a list of those schools that they want to rename And I read in the story that they're very careful to suggest that this is just going to be the buildings, not the school, necessarily the program. Explain the difference. Right. So we have, um, obviously, New Orleans is a decentralized school system. We have uh, uh, nearly all charter schools except one. So basically, you know, we have education, you could say programs or charter schools that operate within buildings. So, you know, the school board controls the buildings, but not the charter school group names per se. So they have been very much focused on saying that they're just renaming the property that the school district owns, which wouldn't necessarily change the name of a charter school. However, there are questions that have been raised that, you know, People are wondering, well, if you're saying we can't have these names on a building, would you possibly come back and say that you couldn't have these names, you know, on a program? Do you think it relates to just school spirit and, and attachment? I, I noticed in your story that you were that, that the public assumed that there could be some pushback from alumni groups. Yeah, I mean, I, I have talked to parents and other people who are concerned about uh, protecting legacy names and it goes in a lot of different directions from, you know, you know, McDonough 35, obviously, as, uh, as board member Carlos Zervagon said, stands for black excellence in this community. And, you know, even though that name is attached to someone who once owned slaves, it, that's not what that name means to a lot of people here. And I talked to another parent who was concerned that, you know, Benjamin Franklin High School, the best performing high school in the state, is you know recognized by college administrators when you apply and you know admissions uh, folks and the, you know the, they don't want their child to not have that advantage when applying to schools 
Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's when you know when I when I saw the the list of names in your story, uh, yeah, the ones that really struck stuck out at me is possibly you know getting pushback from some fiercely loyal alumni groups were in particular McDonough Thirty Five and Benjamin Franklin High School. And McDonough Thirty Five is of course the, the you know the namesake is John McDonough who left a huge a large part of his fortune when he died in eighteen fifty to the city to to build schools. But on the other hand, he was a he was a, a slave owner, and you know, as Marta said, a lot of people do not associate McDonough Thirty Five with John McDonough. They you know they associate it with being the you know the first uh, the first black high school in the city mm. for years, one of the best performing schools in the city. So people who went there, parents whose kids went there, you know, they they really love the school, and they uh, that I think in particular is where they they're expecting some pushback. And is there room for some nuanced decisions here? Is that is it going to end up just being a, a giant wholesale change, or they're going to they'll take into account some of these nuances? Yeah, so that that kind of came up at this um, committee meeting on Tuesday as well, where there were a few board members, one in particular who has previously chaired the board of Ben Franklin, and said, "Hey, can we take some more time? You know, like." Um, Ben Franklin later became an abolitionist, and I think, you know, we really want to keep this name. And then there's or other board members, um, uh, former board president Ethan Ashley in particular, who said, this is not the policy we passed. This is not the question we're asked today. The question is whether these people fit those categories, and they do, right? They, uh. you know, very finely do. And, and board member Katie Bowdoin, who uh, joined the board in January after being elected, uh, she had a similar remark, you know, which was that her her grandmother had graduated from Sophie B. Wright, and Katie said, you know, even as the as the only woman on this board, and potentially taking a woman's name off of a school is not something that I want to be doing, but it was an all white, all girl school. My grandmother went there, and I don't think that reflects, you know, our our times now. So I thought that was a that was a really pertinent comment as well. Hmm. Okay. So this was step one. What's what happens next? There are, uh, st there's still an opportunity for the public to comment on these changes, which actually also had led to some controversy on Tuesday because people said, you know, if you have this public comment period that's still open till April 30th, people thought that there was more time, you know, for which schools would potentially be changed. Uh, but there's still opportunity for the public to comment and there's gonna be two public hearings on April 27th and the second one on May 3rd for um, further input. Hmm. Okay. And then presuming they make some changes, if not all, do they uh, allow public comment to choose new names? I, th I think the public comment is, is generally um, for, for both whether or not they should be changed, but also to suggest new names. So okay. I think they're looking for that now, actually. Okay. Interesting. All right. And what's going on with COVID in the schools? So cases ticked up a little bit, but we saw quarantines go up a lot this week. And I, I'm thinking that could be related to the, uh, you know, Easter, spring break, holiday, maybe travel and family gatherings. Uh, we know the school district is trying to help anyone 16 and over get a vaccine if they want one. So um, that's still an opportunity that people have if they're interested. Okay. And can I ask Marta um, on on the COVID numbers, acknowledging that we saw you know very small uptick and and it's still very 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 few um, students and teachers, and that the city is still doing you know pretty well on its numbers. 
given that we do have these variants and we're seeing reports coming from other parts of the country, particularly Michigan, I believe, um, where they are starting to see some more severe effects on younger kids, has the district at all discussed, you know, possible contingency plans or, or red lines? Um, you know, should we start to see more UK variant activity in this area? They haven't outlined anything explicitly in regards to the variants, but they, they did say on Tuesday that they're at the, these committee meetings that they're going to, you know, revisit their quote unquote reopening plans, even though, you know, we've been open for a long time, but um, that they're going to revisit those plans and, you know, what should be done in the events that things go in the wrong direction. So I, I do think that, you know, they're thinking about that. And they also announced, which I had not known previously, that they are running um, asymptomatic testing at the school sites if anyone needs it. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thanks, Karen. Nick and criminal justice, just under the wire, more than 1,000 post-conviction relief petitions were filed over split jury convictions, just a, a group announced this week. What's the background on this? So uh, Louisiana, uh, as we've, we've discussed previously, was, was one of two states that, that uh, allowed non-unanimous jury convictions, um, which meant that only 10 out of, out of 12 jurors needed to, to vote to convict someone um, in a criminal trial. And this practice date, dates back to an 1898 constitutional convention during which uh, all sorts of Jim Crow laws were passed. One of the delegates said the explicit aim was to uh, strengthen white supremacy in the state or uh, maintain white supremacy in the state. So it's pretty explicitly racist convention. Um, and this was one of the measures that was passed and what kind of uh, legal historians um, have, have found was that it was it was passed with the aim to to silence the the votes of black jurors and to, to convict black defendants. So while while all sorts of you know Jim Crow measures were were kind of rolled back during the civil rights movement, this one was not. Um, and and Louisiana had non-unanimous jury convictions going all the way up until uh, 2018, when when voters in the state voted to to change the constitution and to outlaw non-unanimous convictions. But that change in the law only only applied to to criminal trials that were initiated in 2019 or later. But last year, um, I think exactly a year ago, this Tuesday, the United States Supreme Court ruled that that non-unanimous uh, jury convictions were unconstitutional, um, that they violated the United States Constitution, and that ruling applied uh, to any case that had not finished its appeals process. Right. So, so a whole nother group of cases. It did not, however, apply to, uh, you know, somewhere around 15 or 1600 other people who are in prison um, on non-unanimous convictions where they have exhausted their, their appeals process. So some of these cases, you know, are decade old. Right. So we're talking about a, about 1500 people that have been left behind or so. I mean, this pie just keeps getting narrower and narrower and narrower. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I mean, the real key is the pie is no longer expanding. Um, right. But yes, about about 1,500 people still. still. Okay. And so what, what did this group announce this week? So they announced that they'd filed about 1,000, uh, over 1,000 post-conviction petitions that, that basically, for these people who are still in prison, that bring constitutional claims since the Supreme Court's ruling saying I had a non-unanimous jury conviction. The Supreme Court has now said this is unconstitutional. 
I deserve a new trial. So this was a, a, a pretty massive undertaking to do, you know, in a year to file a thousand of these to, to connect with these these defendants to, you know, learn about their cases and to to confirm that they actually had non-unanimous convictions, which seems like it should be relatively straightforward, but in fact can be very difficult to prove. Um, a lot of these jury slips are sealed and getting uh, getting the records from the court and getting them unsealed can be, can be a really difficult process. So. So this announcement was that they had filed a thousand of these throughout the state for, for people still in prison. Wow. Can I ask you, what is the importance of the one-year mark? Right. So Louisiana state law, uh, post-conviction law, the, the Code of Criminal Procedure, requires that uh, in order to bring a, a, a claim, a post-conviction claim, that's relating to sort of a, a change in constitutional law, it needs to be filed within a year of that decision coming down. Mm. And you know, the post-conviction attorneys who are working on behalf of defendants think that this this law is is sort of unnecessarily restrictive for for people trying to get back into court. That year timeline they think is is very um, tight for people trying to, to work from from prison trying to get these things filed. But you know, this is uh, the law. So they were scrambling to try and get get these filed under that year because of state law. Are there a any people that got left out of this group? It's hard to say because a number of a number of other people were represented by private attorneys. So this group isn't the only group okay. that, that's doing these. And a, num- a number of other people filed on their own. So uh, okay. prisoners can file on their own behalf. So what the total number is, is, is hard to say. Okay. And what about the U.S. Supreme Court decision? And how does that affect, if, if at all, this group? Right. So if the U.S. Supreme Court, so, so the U.S. Supreme Court is currently considering another case, um, Edwards v. Benoit, that would decide whether or not their previous decision that non-unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional should apply to this group, in which case they would automatically have, have a claim that they're sentenced, that they should have a new trial. Wrongfully um, convicted. So for those, for those people who have filed already, there's a thousand plus people they would get a new trial. And I think likely anyone who had a non-unanimous conviction in Louisiana, even if they hadn't filed, I think would have a claim in federal court. Lawyers I talked to seem to think that, although even they, I think, kind of didn't quite know how all of this is going to play out procedurally um, once a decision comes down. Um, if the Supreme Court decides that it is not retroactive, that, that the federal uh, interpretation does not include these 1,500 people, the state court system still could decide that that it should be applied retroactively, that it still could be applied to um, these 1,500 cases. So they have not done that yet, um, but likely the state courts are going to start to need, are, are going to start making decisions on this once the decision comes down. Okay. Um, the former chief justice of the Louisiana Supreme Court, Burnett Johnson, has you know, written a dissenting opinion, basically arguing that they should, that they should absolutely apply this uh, decision retroactively. Okay. For people who may have missed this deadline, we don't know if there are any who did. If they were convicted in, in Orleans Parish, where we have a DA who is voluntarily going through these cases and vacating these convictions, you know, as Nick has reported on recently, I mean, it's, it would still be within his discretion to do that, whether or not they filed on time on this, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly would. And he, his office has a policy right now, um, which I, I have also reported on, of, of not 
barring people from getting getting back into court because of timeliness um, if they have a constitutional claim like like an unanimous jury verdict. So so he would have the discretion and under his policy he he wouldn't object to them them getting back in. And you know that that same position could be taken by district attorneys throughout the state. Um, none of them so far have, but we'll kind of see what happens once the, the uh, Edwards decision comes down. And when are we expecting that decision? Early June or? I think within the next few months. I'm not exactly sure, um, but but I know it it's relatively imminent. Yeah, what I've what I've seen what I've seen is mid to late June is when people seem to be expecting it. Okay. All right, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org donate. Thank you for your support. Michael, some mind-blowing numbers in a story you reported on this week. A city official suggested at a March meeting that they've collected over a million dollars in fines for short-term rental violations, but the actual number was found by you to be closer to $1,500. What did administration officials say at that March meeting? The March meeting was called um, kind of as a, 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 the city council wanted an update from the Cantrell administration about how um, it was enforcing new short-term rental rules that the city council passed in December 2019. Um, you know, they've been doing this intermittently once the coronavirus hit and tourism slowed down. Um, they kind of started checking in a little less, but this was kind of the first checkup we've had in a while, uh, check-in we've had in a while. So the head of the Department of Safety and Permits, uh, Tammy Jackson, was giving this presentation on their short-term rental enforcement measures. And in the middle of that presentation, she said that um, adjudications had um, led to $1 million in fines being paid from January 2019 all the way to January 2021. So she suggested at that meeting that that adjudication had resulted in over a million dollars in fines. Did that not raise any eyebrows? That that's a an order of magnitude higher than than a previous same kind of length of time number. I think that the number it, it depends on your perspective. I think that that number for some people matches up with their perceived uh, with, with, with what they perceive to be a, a large amount of short-term rental violations in the city. I think that some people would argue that there's well over a million dollars in violations that have happened over the last two years. Hmm. Um, however, given the, the cyber attack that hit the city um, in December 2019, given the coronavirus crisis, crisis it did seem a little bit high at the time. That's why um, Brianna Decker, who she was a housing advocate here, um, is now moving away, but she did think that number was a bit high. So she submitted a public records request to try and get some of these numbers. So she sent some in, uh, initial information to us. We submitted some follow-up public records requests. 
Um, and we basically got this view of all of the fines that have been adjudicated and collected from January 2019 to January 2021. And what we found was about $68,000 in adjudicated fines, but we could only find proof that uh, $1,500 was actually paid to the city. So what did city, what are city council members saying about these new, this new number and this disparity or this discrepancy between what they heard or they thought they were hearing and what you found? Yeah, I mean, so, so this was kind of one of those stories where you're calling up city council members for reactions, but during that call, you're also informing them of what you found. So, so all of them were initial reactions. A lot of them, you know, were wanting to wait to, to talk to the administration, um, withholding judgment. But I mean, I do think that we heard some frustration. Um, I, I think that this is continued frustration that several council members have felt um, that the, the Cantrell administration has been fairly unwilling to enforce these short-term rental rules that the city council passed. Um, you know, the city council, you know, when in 2018, when a lot of the current city council was newly elected, one of the first things, you know, they kind of took on as this new body was, we're gonna fix the short-term rental rules. Um, and they, you know, almost immediately went to work on that, spent 15 months, um, you know, holding countless public meetings on this and finally got to pass this. And then I think, what we've seen since then is a serious hesitance from the Cantrell administration to enforce those. So I, I think it's it's been frustrating for the city council. Um, and I think this was kind of another chapter in that. I think that the city council members I talked to were under the impression that that a million dollar figure that was um, cited at the March meeting was referring to short-term rentals. So a little bit surprised to find out that that was not the case. I just add as well that um, for part of this, you know, there would be a valid reason to have little enforcement. Um, you know, March, March 2020 and after, um, you know, we have we have COVID for a long period of time. They weren't even holding these administrative hearings. They had less capacity. And, you know, in terms of the whole citywide workforce was furloughed, partially furloughed. Uh, you know, people were not working at the office. But we have a whole year before COVID happened in which they were doing more adjudication. We can see that in the numbers than they were in 2020, but for some reason that they haven't explained, they weren't actually collecting the money. And again, they, they haven't explained why, and they certainly haven't explained if they're trying to collect any of this money. Right. This is also an administration, like previous ones here, that tries to collect money when they can. So it's curious. <laughs> yeah, if you've ever gotten a traffic camera ticket, you certainly know that. Right. Can you yeah. back up for a second and give a bird's eye view of the of the problem that plagues this city as it does many other kind of um, convention heavy, tourist heavy cities and what's happened with short term rentals and the explosion? When Airbnb in particular really started becoming popular, short term rentals were technically illegal in New Orleans. And I'm talking, you know, like 2013, 2014, thereabouts. But um, the city kind of just allowed them to proliferate regardless. Um, and we got to a point where we had an estimated, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 6,000 completely illegal short-term rentals that were operating full-time. Mm. And eventually this got to the point where the city, you know, under the Landry administration, under public pressure, um, started to put together a regulatory scheme because they didn't want to keep them illegal for, for various reasons. You know, this was a burgeoning industry, I guess, and it was, it was aiding the tourism industry, which is very important in particular to, uh, in particular to 
city politicians, um, as well as the tourism industry. Um, so they developed a regulatory scheme. Uh, what we discovered later was the regulations that they came up with were written in very close consultation with Airbnb and representatives of Airbnb. And what we got in that initial law was was a law that was was pretty lax, allowed for an unlimited number of short-term rentals, an un, you know basically unlimited number of whole home short-term rentals, and regulations that were easy to get around, even if you weren't able to get one of these pretty easy-to-get licenses that were also very inexpensive, you could get around it pretty easily. So the short-term rental market here continued to grow. Um, you know, we did a story a couple of years ago with HuffPost in which we found certain blocks that in the city, in some of the city's historic neighborhoods that were basically, you know, 60-70% full-time short-term rentals. And people were becoming upset because these, these short-term rentals were often being, they were so valuable that it made the, the prices of the houses go up, um, which affected the neighbor's taxes, tax bills, affected rent. Um, it also, you know, obviously takes properties off the market for short-term or for long-term renters. Right. So for all those reasons, people were, and, you know, and ultimately the, the argument was that it was accelerating gentrification in the city. So when this new council came in, as Michael said, they made it one of their priorities to develop a much, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a much tighter regulatory scheme. And that was passed, uh, that was passed in 2019. Okay. Now, um, there is a state controlled fund that's supposed to be used exclusively for STR enforce enforcement. What is that and how is it being used? It's, it's, a, it's a million dollars plus? The Quality of Life Fund um, is a state-controlled state fund that gets revenue from a portion of certain hotel taxes. Um, and the money from that fund is supposed to be used exclusively um, to regulate the short-term rental industry here. Now, the way that's been interpreted by the Cantrell uh, administration is that they have taken certain um, portions of that money and given it to certain departments that have to do with short-term rental regulation um, but not necessarily giving that money directly to the salary of someone who will just deal with short-term rentals. Um, and, and I think there's, you know, some sense to that, you know, that there are responsibilities that are going to, you know, it, someone's job might not be exclusively short-term rentals, but they're involved in the regulation. So, so I think that there is some justification there. I think that on the cynical side, critics have said that this is just a way for the Cantrell administration to put this money um, into places it, it actually wants to use it. But that's been a bit of a controversy as well. Okay. Can you go back also to the number that was cited at that meeting that was, it was about short-term rental enforcement. And the administration officials said that there'd been over a, th a million dollars in fines levied. I think she said adjudicated. Collect. So, so Col she said that there have been a million dollars in fines paid to the city over that two-year period. Um, now, when we found these new numbers and brought it to the city um, and asked about that discrepancy, what they told us is that that number referred to all code enforcement adjudications, not just short-term rentals. Um, now, I rewatched the meeting. Um, that was never mentioned. I'm not sure, you know, how someone was supposed to assume that that's what they were talking about. Uh, you know, WDSU had even reported that evening, um, you know, the headline was, you know, city collects a million dollars in short-term rental fines. Um, and as Charles pointed out, you know, the city didn't rush to correct them as far as we know. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, I, again, I'm not sure how people were supposed to assume that in the middle of this presentation, they suddenly switched what they were talking about from short-term rental fines to all code enforcement fines. And I'll add, you know, you asked earlier whether the number raised any eyebrows, and it certainly did with, as Michael mentioned, Breon Decker. Um, and one of the, you know, so what we know is that there were $68,000 in fines levied during this period, though not collected, only 1500 was collected. And uh, yesterday on Twitter, uh, Breon said something like, you know, if they had just not tried to push it that hard, if they had said $100,000 in fines collected, I never would have filed this public records request. It was just to her immediately, based on the history of this, a million dollars just sounded completely out of this world. Yeah. The only other thing is that when we looked at the, uh, the assessed fines that, that went from January 2019 to December 2019, it was about $62,000, And according to the records, $0 of that had been collected. Now, that raised eyebrows. To me, I still we, – we went to the you know, city multiple times with that number. Um, I asked if there was any explanation for you know, maybe why it wasn't logged that these were paid back. Maybe the cyber attack you know, messed with the records in some way. They didn't give us any reason to, to doubt this data, which, again, came from the city directly. Um, it seems odd to me. I, I, there's still part of my brain that thinks there might be an explanation out there that some of this money might have been collected. Um, but I, I haven't been able to find um, any you know, proof that that's the case. And the city hasn't you know, pushed back at all on this um, to us. So, again, there are parts about this that definitely seem odd. I'm not really sure if there are other types of fines in this city where the collection rate is is this dismal but um definitely an odd an odd number will this result in any a call from council members or other to to have another meeting to to discuss a little bit more what what happens well so it, it's interesting because you know we've been covering for a while now i mean you know charles i took the the short-term rental baton from charles when he was the the city hall reporter um and, and I think, you know, we've been reporting for a while on, you know, the potential hesitancy from the Cantrell administration to enforce these rules. And the city council has held a number of meetings um, to do just this, to kind of ho- try and hold the administration accountable. You know, we're still watching. We want to make sure you're still enforcing these rules. And it just seems that most of the time when the administration comes, they give you know, not so great news about their level of enforcement. And so, I mean, that was one question I had for council members. I mean, you keep calling these meetings, you keep telling the administration you want them to take it seriously. Last year during budget hearings, they implored the city to to take more money for safety and permits, specifically for short-term rentals. And the city said, you know, they didn't need it. So it's a very interesting question, what happens next? Um, You know, it, it really is up to the administration to enforce these rules. I mean. I'm sure there are steps that the city council could take to absolutely force them to do certain things, but the city council tends not to get involved in, in kind of the execution of policy on that kind of fine grand level. Is there any indication, um, and forgive me if I miss this, that they'll, like if you had a short-term rental and you got fined, but then you got the proper permit, you know, so kind of backdated fines or, you know, fines that aren't necessarily currently accurate, Will they go back and collect those, or are they kind of letting them expire? That's a good question. I, I don't know the specifics. It could be possible that, yeah, they forgive a fine if, you know, you go back and you get the right permit. Um, I mean, I know that that's not 
you know, how most municipal fines work, right? If your um, brake tag is out of date and then you get a new one, actually, will they let you off? You might get a, a small cut on that, but yeah, no, it's not typically how city stuff works. So. Uh, Let's test it. So yeah, I, don't, I guess I don't know. Um, you know I, I will mention one more thing, which is that, you know, I, I think that other people have pointed out that it might not be the worst thing that the city isn't, you know, going after all these fines, especially, you know, it's, it's been a, a, a tough year economically for a lot of people in the city. Um, so, you know, giving people a break is all right. I think that, you know, the responses to that are twofold. Number one, you know, like we've mentioned, the city is still collecting money wherever it can on a lot of different issues. Um, and then I think the other part of this, you know, there, there are a couple mechanisms the city has to, to, you know, fight back against illegal, unpermitted short-term rentals. The first is like hearings like this, like what we're talking about that can end in a fine. Um, but the other mechanism, you know, that can happen even before that, um, the new rules um, force Airbnb and these other platforms to delist properties when the city requests it. So if the city, you know, notices that there's a listing and there's no permit number attached, they say you have to take that one down. However, during that same meeting where they cited that $1 million figure, they said that they had only delisted 267 listings, which is significant, but the estimated number, you know, it was estimated that there were thousands of illegal short-term rentals when right. the new rules came into place. So, you know, I, I think that even if you have some doubts about what the, the fine numbers mean. I think if you look at how many properties have been delisted, I think that's another signal that the city isn't exactly, you know, fully on top of this. You sort of mentioned the revenue questions on this. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday and there are different sides to that, right? Because a lot on, on the one side, people say, well, they're not enforcing because they're just concerned about the revenue collection. They, they don't want they don't want to get in this industry's way because they're getting a piece of the taxes, whether or not people are playing by the rules. At least if they're on Airbnb, Airbnb is still collecting these taxes, um, whether or not people are playing by the rules. However, you know, on the on the other side, you know, I get that argument, and you know, I think it's possible. But on the other side, in these specific cases, the enforcement has already happened. They've already they've 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 already gone through the whole enforcement process. They've already collected the taxes on, on these on, on these short-term rental nights, but they're just not doing the collection. It's just money on the table. Um, on top of which, mm. a lot of these violations are for not being permitted, which means they also haven't paid their permit fees. So they're you know they're leaving they're leaving the two pools of money on the table. So I get I get the argument that people think the city doesn't want to do this because of revenues, but if it's already done the enforcement, I just don't understand why it's not doing the collection. Hmm. Unless it's the overall chilling effect on the entire industry, which you could argue is the rising tide for the whole community when there's a lot of tourism in in the city, you know, that's one of the main economic drivers of the entire city. Well, and I, I think they've always done that and been a little lax on enforcement be, because of that. And that's been a city argument in the past we've definitely seen. Hmm. Yeah. And I just want to, I want to point, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but I think that the calculation of, you know, if we start enforcing these rules, we're not going to, you know, collect as much tax revenue um, and that'll affect our bottom line. I think that, you know, you see calculations like that a lot that just do not at all include the negative externalities 
of this industry, right? You know, think about the amount of money that we spend trying to encourage affordable housing, the amount of tax credits we give out every year, the amount of land that we try to manage and lease out. You know, we put a lot of effort into creating affordable housing now. And I never hear, you know, those financial considerations come into play when we're talking about, you know, policies that directly impact those things. Mm. So, you know, I think that if you look at, oh, would we make more money if we collected all the fines or would we make more money if we never find anyone and we collected all the taxes? You know, that's one part of this. But again, there are negatives here like gentrification, like less housing stock um, that the city is going to have to spend money to try and fix. So, I, you know, if we're taking a financial consideration, you know, the negative effects do have uh, financial implications to them. Just point out. Right. Right. Well, great story. Thank you so much for your work on that. Thank you. It's good to have the gang back. Bye, guys. Bye, Carolyn. Uh, thanks. Bye, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.